0: For this second installment of our brief series on being overcomers, we decided to show our congregation a powerful and very timely message that was presented at the 2014 annual gathering of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. The message was delivered by a pastor from the UK named Sam Albury. We played this video at Community Bible Chapel on July 26, 2015, with Sam's direct permission. He lays out in this message an uncompromising case from the Bible of God's gracious design for human sexuality, a design that every follower of Jesus Christ needs to clearly understand right now. And Sam speaks as one whose commitment to that gracious design has been tested far more profoundly than most of us will ever experience. Please take the time to listen carefully to this message, and if you have time, listen more than once. Thank you.
1: And let me thank you for coming along to our session this afternoon, answering tough questions about same-sex marriage. I want to thank you not just for coming along um, to this session, but I want to thank you for caring um, about this issue. As we've been made very aware over the course of uh, this conference, this is not an issue about politics, Uh, this is not about abstract things. What we're dealing with is is people, and people maybe some for some of us we're dealing with issues in our own life, certainly for many of us dealing with issues that are personal to people very close to us. So thank you for coming and I particularly want to thank uh, one group of people especially. I'm aware that there are a number of people here this week and this afternoon who would have quite a different approach to the whole issue of of same-sex partnerships, uh, to the kind of general teaching that is being offered from the front this week and I want to thank you for coming. I'm conscious that this may not be an easy uh, conference for you to come to. But your presence is very much appreciated, whatever your kind of perspective is on this issue. And I hope for all of us this next session together will be useful for us. I am conscious we are treading on very sensitive ground. so let me pray uh, for the Lord to lead us and to guide us as we spend these minutes together. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that uh, you are present with us by your Spirit. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who loves, a God who seeks and saves, a God who is gracious and compassionate. We want to be, as your people, those who reflect all of those things about you. So please equip us. Uh, We pray that your word would inform us and that we would be those who reflect the love of Christ to a world in great need of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just introduce myself. I'm conscious there are a number of people watching online as well. My name is Sam Alberry, I'm from the United Kingdom, as you can probably tell. And I'm a bit of a a contradiction. I'm an Englishman who's an Americanophile. I live in the UK, but I do enjoy coming over to the States. And I'm also a contradiction because I'm a conservative, reformed evangelical, and yet I experience same-sex attraction and have done for pretty much my entire adult life. Um, Being a rather slow person, it took me a long time to kind of twig what was going on. It took me even longer to kind of admit it to other people. I remember one particular day at school, I think I must have been 15 or or 16, and a very good friend of mine, was. it was a Monday morning break time, and everyone was kind of catching up on what we'd all done over the weekend, And uh, one of my best friends shared that he had got together with a girl that weekend. And this was someone I was a really close friend with. And whilst everybody else was kind of high-fiving him and back-slapping and all the kind of stuff that went on at school, I remember feeling devastated. Uh, It just suddenly cut me very deeply that this, this guy who I loved so much as a friend had been intimate with somebody else. And I guess that was the first little sign to me that there was something going on. And it took me a while before I kind of twigged uh, what that something was. But it's something I've been happy to share about publicly over the last couple of years. Not least because I want to say that the word God has for people in my situation, for Christians who experience same-sex attraction, is a good word. It's a word I am thankful for. I see God's word on this issue as an expression of his kindness. And therefore I hope I can convince us we can have confidence in that word. Uh, We mustn't feel as though we're we're giving someone a bad deal when we try to explain what the Bible teaches on sex and marriage. So I think it is a good word. That doesn't mean it's an easy word. And uh, very often it's it's a frustrating word God has for us. Well, I've had um, opportunities to, to speak to groups and churches in different places on this issue. And a number of questions have repeatedly come up, and uh, given the title I've been given is Answering Tough Questions, I thought what I would do is share four of the most common questions that I find come to me when I'm speaking on this issue in different places. So these are four, I think, of the biggest ground-level questions that frequently are raised. Let me just list what they are, and we will try to, to deal with them this afternoon. First question, did Jesus even mention homosexuality? Second question, can't we just agree to differ over this issue as evangelicals? Question number three, isn't a same-sex partnership okay if it's faithful? And then the fourth question, isn't that the kind of traditional Christian position on sex and marriage deeply harmful to people? So those are the four questions we're going to try to address this afternoon. I'm very conscious that we can't do justice to those questions in one session. We could try to do justice to one of them in a whole hour. Uh, we're certainly not going to do justice to four of them. But I hope I can at least sketch out some useful approaches as we try to think about them. So the first question, does Jesus even mention homosexuality? Does Jesus even mention homosexuality, and obviously the implication behind the question is, if Jesus didn't, why are we talking about it? Why are we making a fuss about it? Um, On Twitter recently, I saw someone had tweeted, this is what Jesus said about homosexuality, and then there was just a blank space. So how do we respond? Well, I want to say two quick things. Jesus does not mention homosexuality. Secondly, In what Jesus does mention, he does address it. So, two quick verses for us to to look at. If you've got a Bible with you, either turn to Matthew 15, or if you're the kind of person who uh, likes to do this instead, you can swipe on your gadget uh, to Matthew chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, I'll I'll read out the verses. Uh, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. Jesus is in a discussion with some of the religious Pharisees of his day. And he says to them in verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus is talking about the the different kinds of things that defile us, that make us unclean before God. And he includes in that list the phrase that we've translated sexual immorality, uh, which is, the translation of the Greek word porneia. And if the word porneia sounds a bit familiar, it's where we get the word pornography from. And in the time of Jesus, uh, the word porneia was a kind of catch-all term for any sexual behaviour outside of marriage. That would include adultery, it would include premarital sex, uh, it would include prostitution, and it would include homosexual sex. Jesus says these kinds of sexual behaviour defile us. They are not the only things that defile us, but they are some of the things that defile us. And it's important for us to see that because it shows that whilst Jesus doesn't name homosexuality, in teaching like this he does include it. With all sexual activity outside of marriage, Jesus prohibits it. So Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality, but he does include it. Now, let me just give you uh, an illustration of this. Just imagine, I was so grateful that you've come along this afternoon. Actually, you don't imagine that. I am very grateful that you've come along this afternoon. But just imagine, I was so grateful this afternoon that I decided to say to you, as a thank you for coming, I want to give each of you $50 on your way out. I'm not going to do that, obviously, I'm I'm English, we don't do things like that. But just imagine that offer was, was hanging in the air. Now, you would be eligible for that money, but have I named you? I've not named you, but it's very clear from what I said that I included you. Jesus has not named homosexuality in this verse, but it's very clear from what he teaches, that it's included. A uh, second quick passage for us to turn to is Matthew chapter 19 and verses 3 to 6. Some of these passages may be very familiar to some of us on these issues. Again, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they raise a question about divorce. So Matthew 19 verse 3, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I gather there were rabbis at the time of Jesus pretty much teaching just that. Uh, for any kind of triviality, you could divorce your wife. I think one even taught that if she burnt your, your meal, those were grounds for divorce. So they want to catch Jesus and see where he lands on this issue. And Jesus responds um, in a typically uh, insightful way. He says in verse 4, Have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now Jesus is doing a number of things there. The first thing he's doing is he's he's poking he's poking a little bit of fun at them. These are Pharisees who were so proud at the extent to which they were steeped in the scriptures, and Jesus begins his answer by saying, Haven't you read? and quotes Genesis 1. You know, guys, did you you get as far as, I don't know, Genesis 1 in your (laughs) Bible reading? It's a great way to put a Pharisee down. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the Old Testament. Anyway, the first chapter might be relevant to you. Now, Jesus says a couple of things. Um, In verse 4, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting from two different verses. There one from Genesis 1, one from the end of Genesis 2. And he puts them together. From the beginning, God created them male and female for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, our being created as men and women is connected to the fact that we have this thing called marriage. Because there is such a thing as gender, we have this phenomenon of marriage. Jesus tethers marriage to the sexual difference between men and women. Marriage is predicated on gender. Now, friends, that is hugely significant because there are all sorts of ways that, that two people in a couple can be different and kind of fit well together. One might be left brain, the other might be right brain. One might be an extrovert, the other might be an introvert, but there is no deeper complementarity in the Bible than that between a man and a man and a woman. And it is this kind of union, and actually only this kind of union, that the Bible describes as one flesh. So Jesus shows us that marriage is predicated on gender. He shows us something else as well, just a few verses later, as Jesus expands on what it means for the two to become one. The disciples get cold feet and in verse 10 the disciples say, if, this is, if such is the case, of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. You know, you can imagine the disciples freaking out a little bit here, going, you know, goodness me, if this is what it's like, then I might just give the whole marriage thing a bit of a miss. That sounds a bit too committed. Well, look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the very moment the disciples start questioning whether to marry, Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. He starts talking about the celibate. So the disciples say, maybe it's better not to marry. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, maybe cohabit for a while, try before you buy. No, Jesus immediately talks about celibacy. The only godly alternative to heterosexual marriage is singleness. So, friends, as I understand, that the teaching of Jesus tells me that any kind of same-sex activity is not an option as a follower of Jesus. Now, I need to immediately set that in the wider context of how the Bible says that All of us are out of sync with God in every area of life, including our sexual desires. All of us, in this room together, are attracted to things we shouldn't be. So, friends, in that sense, none of us is straight. All of us are skewed in our sexual desires. Same-sex attraction is one expression of that, but it is not the only expression of that. So, two quick conclusions on this question. The first is, Jesus is not neutral when it comes to this issue. Second conclusion, the Bible's teaching on marriage alone is enough to settle the issue of whether same-sex marriage, same-sex activity is permissible. In other words, we believe what we believe about homosexuality because we believe what we believe About marriage. As you know, there are six passages in the Bible that directly address same sex practice. But even if those passages weren't in the Bible, we would still know that sex is for marriage and that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the first question. Second question can't we just agree to differ? As fellow evangelicals, um, very often we we make wisely, I think, in in our church life, we make a distinction between core primary issues and kind of secondary issues, where there's room for kind of uh, differing with one another. Uh, Issues where we're free to differ would include things like the nature of certain spiritual gifts, what we understand about the millennium, how often a church should take communion, Uh, questions over the the appropriate age at which someone should be baptised, and with how much water, and whether they are inserted into the water or the water inserted over them, all those sorts of issues. We don't treat those issues as central issues. We treat them as secondary issues. So how come, or rather why can't we treat homosexuality as another secondary issue? there are people who claim to be evangelicals with differing views. Surely, as an evangelical constituency, we have to allow that and to facilitate that. Well, I want to share um, four reasons why I think the issue of homosexuality has to be a core issue for us as evangelicals. Why it mustn't be one of those issues we just agree to differ over. The first reason is the authority of Scripture. Uh, The Bible directly mentions same-sex activity uh, in six different passages. In every case, it does so negatively. Uh, I know there are some evangelicals who question whether Genesis 9 is explicitly condemning homosexual desire or just a violent expression of it, but even if we allow for a bit of wiggle room on that, every other instance, the Bible seems very clear. And it strikes me that what you have to do to the Bible to make it supportive of gay relationships is profoundly unevangelical. Uh, we have to ignore the contexts verses come in. We have to determine the key words used not by how the biblical author uses them, but by how secular writers in a completely different time and place use those words. And it's interesting that a, a number of non-Christian uh, writers are far clearer on what the Bible says about homosexuality than, than many who claim to be evangelical. What you have to do to the Bible to make it approve of same sex relationships is profoundly unevangelical. So, first reason, the authority of Scripture. Secondly, the meaning of marriage. One of the purposes of marriage in the Bible is that this union between a man and a woman shows the mystery of Christ and the church. Human marriage is the icon of the relationship Jesus has with his people. But if we now construe marriage as being between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, that picture is disfigured. We're left instead with Christ and Christ, or the church and the church. In other words, when you begin to change the biblical definition of marriage, you end up changing something that should be reflecting the gospel. Thirdly, on why we can't just agree to differ, the fate of unrepentant homosexual people. Uh, Turn with me please to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, a passage that has been touched on a couple of times this conference already. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Paul touches there on the issue of homosexuality. It is not the only thing on Paul's list. We need to be as serious as evangelicals about greed, about reviling, about swindling. But we do need to be serious about homosexual practice. Paul assumes we might be deceived. He says, don't be deceived. There will be those who attempt to show that this is not the case. But Paul shows why it matters so much. Eternity is at stake. If we approve of something that God himself forbids, my friends, we are sending people to hell. And so this is a different order issue to some of the other issues that we may agree to differ over. Eternal destiny is not at stake when it comes to understanding what your view is of the millennium. It is at stake, Paul says, with this issue. It could not be more serious. Fourth reason why we can't agree to differ is the disapproval of Jesus. Uh, Turn please to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. If we're going to make a distinction, which I don't think we should, between the teaching of Jesus himself and uh, the rest of Scripture, we've got to realise there's a lot of red ink outside the Gospels. Jesus says these words to the church in Thyatira. Revelation 2.20 I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Uh, the situation seems to be there as false teaching in Thyatira. Jesus refers to the teacher as Jezebel. I take it that's not their actual name, it's kind of using that um, Old Testament echo of Jezebel. And the feature of this teaching, or one of the features of this teaching, is that it leads God's people into sexual sin. But notice how Jesus responds to the situation. He's not just against the person doing the teaching. He doesn't say, I've got this against Jezebel. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Friends, not all tolerance is godly. There are certain things we should be intolerant of. And Jesus says that the presence of teaching in our churches that leads to sexual sin is something we should not tolerate. Now, I hope it's very obvious and doesn't need to be said that... Not tolerating those things is no excuse for for rudeness or brashness or arrogance or cockiness. But the fact remains that we must act when such teaching is present in our midst. Not taking a side on this issue is taking a side. It is tolerating. And this passage shows us if you do that, you risk having Jesus against you. And my friend, please remind yourself of who Jesus is in Revelation chapter 1 and ask yourself, do you want that Jesus to be against you? And we do very well to remember that if we are on the right side of that Jesus, we will not be on the wrong side of history because he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So, friends, I am convinced this must be a core issue for us. And so, again, two quick conclusions, if that is the case. The first is we can't avoid this issue. I take it you know that. That's why you're here. If you are a pastor, you mustn't avoid teaching on this issue. Now, you must avoid only teaching on this issue and putting it in a category of its own. But you mustn't duck the issue. If the folks in your church are not being taught by you on this issue. They will only be taught by the secular world around them. Now, I've heard people in significant churches and ministries say that they don't want to talk about this issue because they might lose their platform for the gospel. Well, friend, if that is you, please don't seek a platform for the sake of the gospel unless you are willing to lose that platform for the sake of the gospel. Being unashamed of the gospel means being unashamed of all of it. That was the first conclusion. Don't avoid this issue. The second conclusion I feel we have to draw is that it will be right, if also deeply sad, for evangelical denominations and organisations to make this an issue over which members might have to be disaffiliated. Um, In the UK, the Evangelical Alliance recently decided to disaffiliate a particular church and ministry because their leader had been someone who has become, I think, profoundly unbiblical on this issue. I gather that the Southern Baptist Convention has had to make a similar decision in recent months as well. Now, those decisions, I take it, will be very, very hard. Often the individuals involved are people we know and love as friends. It should be heartbreaking. Such decisions as well attract a fair amount of opposition. But can I also say that such decisions are a huge encouragement to Christians and your churches who battle same-sex attraction. Because those decisions say to us that our daily battle for godliness is worth fighting when denominations and organisations tolerate the kind of false teaching we've been looking at, that says to people in my situation, you don't really need to be fighting that sin. It doesn't really matter. Uh, very sadly, it is sometimes going to be right for us to draw a line on this issue. So friends, I'm convinced that it is not an issue we can just agree to differ over. Question number three. Again, I'm very conscious this is far too superficial. Thank you for bearing with that. Question number three, surely a gay relationship is okay if it's faithful. Surely what matters the most, people might say, is not the gender of people in a relationship, but whether they are faithful and committed. If a same-sex couple is faithful, isn't that what's most important? If two people love each other and are faithful to whatever promises they've made, surely that should be the bottom line. Well, friends, in the Bible, it is not the case that faithfulness is the key to whether a relationship is morally appropriate or not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul rebukes the church in Corinth because it is accepting in its midst an illicit relationship. A man is having a relationship with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. A relationship forbidden in Leviticus chapter 18. And Paul is dismayed. Uh, Even the pagans, he says, would not have allowed such a thing. And yet it's going on in plain sight among God's people. So you have this relationship going on in the church in Corinth. And Paul's response is instructive for what he doesn't say as much as for what he does say. Paul doesn't say in response to this situation, can you just tell me, are the couple faithful? And then I will let you know whether this is a godly relationship or not. He doesn't ask about the level of commitment between this man and his father's wife. He doesn't say, do they they really love each other? Can you just let me know that first? And then I'll respond. No, that is not the issue. Whether or not they're being committed and faithful and long-term is beside the point. Paul doesn't distinguish between faithful illicit relationships and unfaithful illicit relationships. And in this particular situation, Paul calls for the church to express grief over what it's been allowing. Friends, it is possible to demonstrate some virtues while doing something that is wrong. And because it is possible, does not justify the wrong thing we might be doing. Uh, Take a a slightly silly example, but imagine a gang of bank robbers. Um, A particular member of that gang may display impeccable loyalty to his fellow gang members during the course of robbery. He may look out for them. He may protect them. He may make sure that everyone gets a a fair share of the takings. But none of this in any way lessens the immorality of the act itself. Just because he's a loyal thief doesn't make his thievery right. And friends, there are many same-sex partnerships that exhibit enormous commitment and faithfulness. But that doesn't mean that such relationships are thereby justified. Activity that is faithful and committed is no more permissible just because it is faithful and committed. That was question three. Final question, and I think for many of us the the biggest question that gets raised in these contexts. Isn't the traditional Christian position on sex and marriage harmful? Is it not the cause of acute mental health problems, even suicide? Um, I'm finding now this is the most uh, frequently raised question I get asked. And again, it is certainly the most emotive. Um, Dan Savage uh, wrote these words, and I'm quoting from Justin Lee's book, Torn. Dan Savage writes, The dehumanising bigotries that fall from the lips of faithful Christians give your straight children a license to verbally abuse, humiliate and condemn the gay children they encounter at school and they fill your gay children with suicidal despair. He then adds, and you have the nerve to ask me to be more careful with my words. It is put provocatively, but it expresses how many people feel today. Our line on this issue inflicts great harm on people's mental health. It is claimed. It engenders deep self-loathing. It forces people who are not suited to it into a celibate lifestyle. Um, the claim would, would say, I just thought of this the other day. It does with celibacy what you two have just done with their album. Um, It foisted on everyone, irrespective of whether they actually want it or not. (laughs) And perhaps they might add you too have the the sense to apologise for that. So what do we say to this as godly people? Uh, The first thing, and again this is why this is such a huge question, is it is a heartbreaking situation. There is no doubt there are folks out there, young people especially, who feel enormous amounts of self-loathing. The fact that there are young people struggling with different kinds of sexual identity who find themselves in a situation where the only way forward that they can imagine is to take their own life has to break our hearts. And I suppose one of the first things we we need to say is that our conviction as Christians is there is never an excuse for abusive language or behaviour. There have undoubtedly been those who have victimised and who have ridiculed those with same-sex attraction and have thought that by doing so they are somehow furthering the Christian cause. Such abuse is every bit as unchristian as the behaviour they claim to have the right to denounce. But the question still remains, is our position, even if graciously and carefully articulated, Is our position responsible for harming the mental health of people around us? I've got a couple of things to say under this question. The first thing to say is the gospel involves enormous cost and enormous blessing for everyone. The gospel is costly for everyone. Uh, The gospel makes us see ourselves in a new and painful light. Because the teaching of Jesus shows us we're not just a little bit flawed here and there, needing a bit of fine-tuning. The teaching of Jesus is that we are fundamentally sinful at heart. And that is a painful thing to learn. Jesus calls Jesus on us to give up everything for him. Uh, he says in Mark chapter 8, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus calls us to give up our very self to him. Our sense of who we think we are. Now friends, my point in raising that is is not to say that therefore it doesn't matter if people feel deep self-loathing. It does matter. My point is that the gospel should be costly for every single person who turns to Christ. Um, when I've done talks on this issue, I've I've lost count of the number of people who've come up to me afterwards and said, yeah, but the gospel's harder for you, isn't it? Because it goes right against who you really are. And the first thing I respond by saying is, actually, my same-sex attraction is not who I am. It's part of what I feel, but it's not who I am. But secondly... Are you trying to tell me that the gospel is just kind of slotted in neatly into your life without any kind of reappraisal or cost or frustration at all? Because if that's the case, it's not this gospel you've received. There is no one for whom the gospel is not hugely costly. And there is no one for whom that same gospel is not utterly worth it. Um, Let me take you to Mark chapter 10 and one of my favourite verses at the moment. I think we're in our favourite verses. Mark 10, verse 29. I'll start at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Peter raises this issue. He says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And we don't know the tone of Peter's voice. We don't know if he's asking this out of pride, saying, we've left everything. We're the the heroes. We're the guys here. Or whether he's asking out of despair, going, Jesus, we've left everything. Please tell me this is going to be worth it. But either way, Jesus' answer is the same. He recognises that there are those who have to leave things behind to follow him. That is part of what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross. To turn to Jesus, we have to turn away from many things, many things that are precious to us. Following Jesus involves leaving things behind and giving things up. But the promise here is that However much we have to leave behind, we are never left out of pocket. We never receive a bad deal. And notice Jesus isn't just saying, yes, you have to give a lot up in this life, but grit your teeth and hang in there because eventually there'll be heaven. No, Jesus says there is no one who won't receive a hundredfold now in this time and then in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying following him is worth it even in this lifetime and even with hardship. Whatever we leave behind Jesus replaces in godly kind and far greater measure. And what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives us back. If the costs are great the rewards are are greater and interestingly that the main cost Jesus anticipates is relational and the main blessing Jesus anticipates is relational we may well have to leave some relationships behind in order to follow Jesus but we will receive homes and family as part of his people, Jesus gives us family. It's wonderful, isn't it? You don't just come to Jesus and find it's just me and Jesus now hanging out for the rest of my life. Jesus puts us in families. And so he promises us brothers and sisters, mothers, children, and even as he anticipates persecutions, That gives us, as God's people, a responsibility. We are to be family to those who leave behind much to follow Jesus. And so, my friends, if you are seeking to share the gospel with someone who will have to give up relationships to follow Jesus, you've got to be there for them if they come to believe that gospel. But the main point I want to make from this verse is this. The moment you think following Jesus is a poor deal for someone, you are calling Jesus a liar. The gospel is costly. It should be costly for each one of us, because each one of us has built our whole lives and identity and sense of who we are on a faulty foundation. And we have to come to terms with that and give ourselves to Christ, to be named by him, identified by him. But as we do so, we are put in a family by him. Next thing to say on this issue, on my understanding and in my experience, we evangelicals are not the ones who say sex is everything. We are not the ones who say that a life without sex is no life at all. And the idea that the assumption behind the, the, the kind of challenge that celibacy is in itself harmful means that sex has become an idol. If life without sex is not conceivable for you, it is very clear what is really God in your life. Uh, A friend of mine, Andrew Wilson, back in the UK, once uh, recently spoke on the issue of, why does God care who I sleep with? And part of his answer was to turn the question around and say, why do you care so much who you sleep with? Why is that where you draw the line and object to following God? Why is that your one non-negotiable? It strikes me that it is our culture that is making sex into an idol, And therefore is saying to people, when your sex life doesn't work out, your life hasn't worked out. It is not the the evangelical church, but our society around us that is putting the stakes up that high. And my question is, which perspective is most likely to make someone feel that their life is not worth living? The perspective that says sex is everything, and if it's not fulfilling, then there's no point life without sex is no life at all. Or the Christian perspective that should be saying, sex is a wonderful gift from God, but it is but a gift and is no substitute for the giver. We are not the ones who say that a lack of sexual fulfilment is a lack of human fulfilment. So friends, I don't deny that the church has been the cause of, of ungodly and unwarranted pain and abuse for people over the years and we should not be slow to confess that and to repent of it. But I want to challenge the culture around us to say I think it has blood on its hands as well in making sex the centre. Final thing to say on this issue, well there's far more we could say on this issue, but final thing I'm going to say on this issue which we've touched on already today is that celibacy and singleness is seen as a good thing in the Bible. Jesus himself was single, whilst being the fully most fully human and complete man ever to live. And therefore, as I was saying earlier, marriage and sexual activity are not intrinsic to being a fulfilled human being. Not only was Jesus single, but his apostle Paul too was single, and he described singleness as a gift marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift singleness is not just the absence of marriage it is a gift and a good thing in and of itself both marriage and singleness give us ways to fulfil our humanity to point to the gospel and to serve the kingdom I so appreciated what uh, Christopher Ewan was sharing earlier it makes um, as much sense for someone to say, I'm married, but I don't think I have the gift of marriage, as it does for someone to say, I'm single, but I don't feel like I have the gift of singleness. Now, friends, that is not to say that singleness isn't difficult. I think living now in this particular point in our cultural history makes singleness much, much difficult than it may have been in other times. Our culture now is designed around couples and sexual intimacy. And we have almost entirely identified intimacy with sex. And one result of that is we have far less skill in forming deep, lifelong friendships than we used to have. So much so that when we look at, say, some figures from history and and see a deep friendship, we assume it must have been sexual. And there is an extent to which the church has not countered this trend, but merely Christianised it. Again, as we've been discussing um, over the course of this, this conference, we need to work harder at providing places of community. The New Testament describes the church as family. It describes fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. And that is not an honorary thing, that is real. Timothy is told by Paul to treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters. He doesn't say to Timothy, treat older men as as a bit like the great uncle, who you might see once every Thanksgiving, but that's about it. No, treat the older men in your church as fathers. Treat the younger men in your church as brothers, not like distant cousins, or kids down the street that you may be vaguely familiar with, but you don't really know what their name is. No, we are to be truly family to one another. Let me close by turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, some verses about the church community. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul describes the church in two ways in this verse. He describes the church as the pillar and the foundation, the buttress of the truth. And you might be tempted to think Paul's got that the wrong way around. Surely the truth is the foundation of the church. Obviously, if you take the truth away, the church will fall down. But Paul is saying there is a sense in which the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth because it is the church that is the outlet for God's truth in this world. It is the church that holds up the truth for the world to see. But Paul also describes the church as the household of God, the family of God. If God is your father, then your fellow believers are your brothers and your sisters. They are your family. And I believe those two things go together. It is when we most properly reflect the fact that we are the household of God, when we treat one another as true family, that we will find people take far more notice of the truth that we seek to uphold and present to the world around us. It may well be the strength of the relationships within our church family that are the greatest evidence for the truth of what we believe about sex and marriage. And so the challenge for us is, are our churches places where there is community, where there should be no one who is having Thanksgiving dinner on their own if they don't want to? Are we being family to one another? Are we opening up our own biological families, our own households, to our spiritual brothers and sisters? If we do, again, I think we will have far more impact with the truth that we uphold in the world around us. Friends, I have scratched the surface to mix metaphors of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, These are weighty issues and they warrant far more of our time than I've been able to give them this afternoon. And I want to thank you for, for bearing with that. I know for some of us this may have felt very, very inadequate and very simplistic. Again, I'm very aware that this is sensitive ground for many of us. We're talking about things that are deeply personal to our own lives, and to those who are close to us. But I want to finish with the word on which I began. That my experience, and that of so many Christians I know who have experience of same-sex attraction, is that the word God has for us is a good word. A word we can rejoice in. A word we need not be ashamed of. We're never better off without the word of God, and we are never worse off with it and that is because God himself is so unfathomably good let me pray for us as we close our father we want to thank you for the loving kindness that you have expressed to each of us in your son jesus christ though we exchange the truth of god for a lie we thank you that in christ you have exchanged our sinfulness For his righteousness. Though we deserve to be given up and handed over into sin, you gave him up and made he who was without sin to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Our Father, we pray that as we continue to think on this important issue of marriage and homosexuality, that we would keep Jesus at the center of all of our thinking, of all of our speaking. May we never utter a word that does not reflect the great love you've shown us in him. We pray you'd give us wisdom and strength to know how to articulate the truths you've given us in a way that is winsome, in a way that is kind, in a way that is sensitive and compelling. And we pray, our Father, that you might use even us as a channel of your peace. And we pray this all in the matchless name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.